Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. The proof is in the pudding. It's a handy phrase that we have to say that the evidence of whether something is legitimate or not, whether it is the real deal, will be in the tasting of it or in the experiencing of it. And I was thinking of that phrase, the proof is in the pudding, a lot this past week. One, because it's very much what the Apostle Paul is saying in the passage that we're going to look at today. Uh, but also, secondly, because I like pudding. always have liked pudding. It's one of my favorite desserts as a kid. I, I enjoy all kinds of pudding, pudding pops. I've even been known to sample that, that vat of pudding that's sometimes at the salad bar when you go out to eat. I like pudding. So I was curious about where did this phrase come from? The proof is in the pudding. And I was surprised to find out that the phrase has nothing to do with pudding as I know it. It has to do with pudding as the British sort of know it, kind of a dish of, of minced, chopped up meats. And apparently back in the Middle Ages, uh, folks would make some kind of pudding, kind of sausage-looking thing that was filled with minced meats and various and sundry other items, and refrigeration being what it was in the Middle Ages, which is non-existent, and contamination being what is was in the Middle Ages, which is very much existent. Uh, you never knew what you were getting into when you cut into a, a pudding, one of these sausages. And so they would say, the proof is in the pudding. Is it the real deal? Is it good? Or is it spoiled? Is it something that needs to go in the garbage? Does it not follow through on what it promised? The proof is in the pudding. That's basically what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Really, he's been saying it to them all throughout chapters 1 through 4. And it's kind of that, that whole argument and that whole correction that he's doing with them is coming to a head and to a point here at the end of chapter 4. And he's, he wants to say to the church at Corinth, you, you talk a lot. You like hearing people talk, and you have heroes because of how they talk. But the proof is going to be when I come and see you guys. Is the kingdom coming in your midst? Has the gospel had its transforming effect? The proof is going to be in the pudding, the Apostle Paul says, when I get there. The evidence will be there as, as to whether you have experienced and are experiencing God's kingdom in a real way. So let's look at those verses that the Apostle Paul, that, that Jeff read from us from the Apostle Paul, the end of chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. And, and Paul is, has been in a mode of care and correction with this local church. Now, we have a tendency to, to not feel very cared for when we're being corrected. But within the body of Christ, to, to correct one another in a loving and gentle way, as the Apostle Paul says at the end of this passage, is his intent, is a very caring and a very loving thing to do. We need discipline in our lives. A writer to the Hebrews uh, said this about discipline amongst the body of Christ within the church. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Kids, you could have said amen right there. We all could have said amen right there. No discipline seems very, very fun at the moment, for sure. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to all those who have been trained in it. And that's the approach that the Apostle Paul, the spiritual father of the Corinthian church, takes in this passage. And so as we walk through the passage this morning, we're going to look at Paul's parental approach, his fatherly correction to this church. So let's walk through the text, observing how Paul, as a parent, lovingly correcting this body of believers, uh, how he does that. First of all, in verse 14, look at Paul's method, his method of parenting here, his, his method of correcting them. He says, I don't write these things to you in order to, to shame you, He's writing these things. Remember, these things is, is all that he said about correcting their pride and correcting their arrogance. He says, I'm not writing these things in order to shame you. No, in fact, he calls them his beloved children. I love you guys. I'm doing this for your good. No correction seems pleasant at the moment, but, but I want to plant in you something that will yield the fruit of righteousness. 
you guys have been acting like spoiled children. As my mom used to say for us, you're, you're, you're acting too big for your britches. You've got big heads. On uh, the text we looked at last week, he said, you guys are you're puffed up. Pride is, is giving you a big head. You're arrogant. Uh, you, you have this hero worship thing going on, and then, then you sort of attach yourself to one of your, your favorite pastor leaders, and, and that guy's your hero, and, and you think that says something about you, and you're, you're all into this thing called human wisdom, this sort of conventional way of thinking expressed in, in eloquent speech. And, and like as we looked at last week, you're acting like you've already arrived. Yes, the kingdom is here, but you're, you're acting like you're already reigning with King Jesus. Yes, you're very gifted, but, but you take pride in your spiritual gifts. You almost seem beyond correction. Paul even calls them spiritual babies at the beginning of chapter 3. And in what he had just written in the verses above this, um, looking at verses 7, 8, and 13, that is just filled with biting irony and, and great sarcasm. Already you are reigning. Already you have arrived. Uh, already you are fully satisfied. And with the amount of sarcasm that Paul has been using here, he's, he's not meaning to shame them, but he's pushed right up against the edge. He's right up against the edge where he might shame them. And as a good parent in the Lord, he backs off and says, hey, guys, I'm not here to shame you, but I am writing to admonish you. I am writing to strongly urge you. This is a, this is a very full word, um, the Greek word nutheo. Uh, those in, in biblical counseling will recognize this. The, the whole uh, uh, sort of stream of nuthetic counseling gets its its title from this term, to, to admonish, to constructively warn a brother or sister, to, to, to give them weighty counsel. It literally means to apply pressure to the mind and heart, to help straighten out someone's thinking. Paul says, that's what I'm doing. I'm urging you. I'm admonishing you. I want to help straighten out your, your crooked thinking here. And this was Paul's reason for writing to them in the first place. He had heard some reports, you remember, from Chloe's people about their prideful uh, way of, of living as the body of Christ, the factions and the divisions that were there. Plus, the Corinthians had written him a letter with some questions about some things that we're going to begin to look at. We're going to see some texts that begin with concerning this. And when we see that, we know Paul's addressing something that the Corinthians wrote to him to ask him a question about that. And that was good. But some of the questions they were asking were indicating to him that there were some real problems going on in this church. And so that's why he's writing. I'm writing to, I'm writing to urge you. I'm writing to, to, to apply some pressure of God's word and, and my apostolic authority to your lives. That's Paul's method. His method is to, is to urge them, is to admonish them, is to strongly warn them as their spiritual father. And that, is, in fact, is the basis, verse 15, of Paul's parental approach. Paul says, I am your father in the faith. You might have countless, you might have 10,000 guides or tutors in the faith. This is the picture of a tutor who would be hired by the family, perhaps even a high-ranking slave who would be hired by the family to, to tutor and teach uh, the children. Sort of a hired hand you may have many people who are tutoring you in the faith. You may be in 12 Bible studies, and you may be in six small groups, and you may download, you know, 15 different podcasts. But you only have one father in the faith. And Paul says, I became your father. Very, very graphic here. I fathered you. I begat you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember how that happened in the city of Corinth. Paul came to Corinth on his second missionary journey. He began speaking the gospel, demonstrating that Jesus truly is the Christ. Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah, speaking in the synagogue. He gets kicked out of the synagogue, so he speaks uh, in the, the house of the synagogue ruler next door. And, and people become, begin to come to faith in Jesus Christ. They trust in this Messiah that, that Paul is preaching and teaching about. And in that sense, he becomes their spiritual father. They have, they have new birth through the, the gospel that God, that he, they, he is preaching by God's grace 
as the Spirit transforms them and regenerates their heart. And so Paul says, you can go to a lot of Bible studies. You can have a lot of small group leaders, but you only have one father in the faith. You only have one father through the gospel. And I am writing to you as your dad, urging you with great intensity and with great compassion and love. Note next Paul's instruction as their parent in verse 17. Verse 17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved, uh, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul says, I'm urging you, I'm exhorting you as your father in the faith, and I'm sending you Timothy, uh, my protege. It's almost like there's a little bit of sibling rivalry going on here, right? I'm sending you, I'm sending you the good kid, the one who's getting it right. Well, I don't think that's quite what Paul is saying here in sending Timothy. But Timothy had been Paul's protege. Paul had built into him as a, as a young pastor and leader in the church. And now Paul is sending them Timothy to make sure they get it. He says, I'm, I'm urging you. I'm exhorting you. And here is the instruction that he's giving them through Timothy. Here's the content of it. Imitate me. Imitate me. Do what you've seen me do. Would you dare say that? To anyone that you are discipling, imitate me. Do what you've seen me do. But notice that Paul, that Paul's instruction to imitate him is not just to imitate him, is to imitate Christ in him. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says the very same thing, but he clarifies there in chapter 11. Be imitators of me even as I am of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, there's nothing unique, Paul says, about his teaching. This is the same teaching that he has in every church, in every place. He's, he's sort of reiterating what he said up in verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? I'm not telling you guys to do. I'm not telling you guys to be anything that I haven't said to any other church. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate Christ in me. Imitate the form of Jesus, Jesus' cruciformed life in me, giving of myself for the good of others, for their joy in Christ and in the gospel. And Paul says you may need a reminder you may need someone to refresh your memory. I think there's a lot of, a lot of grace in how he says that uh, in, verse, in verse 17. I'm sending you Timothy, my beloved faithful and child, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, for this purpose, to remind you, to remind you of my ways. See, the issue for us is often not information, but application. We need to be reminded of Christ's ways. Often the problem isn't that we don't know what they are, but we simply need to be reminded, urgently reminded. It reminds me of what the Apostle James says in his letter, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, and so deceive ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and then he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, into God's word and its instruction and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he or she will be blessed in their doing. And so Paul's instruction is to, to imitate him even as he imitates Christ. Next, we come to Paul's warning, his parental warning to those who hear but don't act on what he's doing in verses 18 and 19. Paul sort of sounds like a parent 
who can hear something going on upstairs. The kids are doing something, and they say, don't make me come up there. Don't make me come over there. You don't think I'll do it? <laughs> Just try me. Paul says, I'm coming to you guys. Uh, you, 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 may, you may think it's been five years since I've been there, and, and maybe I'm not coming, but my intention is to come. Now, if the Lord wills it, if the Lord changes my plans, Paul's always been up for that. If, if the Lord changes his plans, he's going to do what the Lord calls him to do. But Paul says, I'm coming to you guys, and there's a specific group that I have a beef with. He calls them the arrogant people or, or the puffed up ones, literally the puffed up ones. It's the same word he uses back in verse 6 in this chapter when he saw, talks about those who are puffed up in favor of one against another. I'm going to come to you soon if the Lord wills at verse 19. And I'm going to find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Paul's addressing a specific group here, the, the, the puffed up ones, the ones who have, have the inflated egos, who think they've got it all figured out. They're the ones, Paul says, they are the big talkers. And I don't want to hear their talk anymore. I want to see their lives. The proof is going to be in the pudding of their lives. Yes, they talk the talk. They have this, this wisdom they're all about. But do they walk the walk? Paul says, I don't want to see their talk. I want to see their power. And here he is getting to the heart of the matter. This, in fact, is the crux of the passage this morning, friends. Verse, eight, verse 19. For the king, verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. See, this is, this is a gospel issue. Remember what Paul said in chapter 2, verses 1, 1 through 5, about talk. Look at that again. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It says, And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with, with lofty speech, there's that talk, or wisdom, in quotation marks, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in, in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This is a gospel issue, Paul is saying. Where is the power in the gospel? Is it in, in persuasive speech? Is, is it in the ability to impress people with the way you talk? Or does the gospel find its source of power in the cross, in Jesus Christ and Him crucified? This is the danger ahead sign that Paul is giving to his spiritual children. He's saying, warning, there's danger ahead, real spiritual danger to your souls for anyone who trusts in their own strength. That's the height of arrogance. It's, it's, it's utter foolishness. And here's why. Because the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of talk, but it's a matter of power. You see, what's happening, Paul says, his, his goal in his parental warning and instruction here is to focus their eyes on something bigger than themselves. What's going on in your midst, in, in your particular church, it's as big as the kingdom of God. It's huge. Last week, uh, Jeff Johnson, in inviting us to the Kingdom 101 seminars that he's leading, uh, made a very insightful comment and observation about the kingdom of God. He said basically this, that the kingdom of God is, is so vast, it's so all-encompassing that it's hard to wrap your mind around, that if, that if someone came up to you and said, hey, what is the kingdom of God? You, if you're like me, you 
I was kind of scared when he said that. I said, I thought, I hope he doesn't ask me to define the kingdom of God right now because it, it just seems so, so big and, and unwieldy and it's huge. And yet, Jeff said, and yet it can be defined in the most simple terms. Namely, the kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus Christ. It is the power and the authority of Jesus Christ being brought to bear on this planet and in the universe. You see, wherever you see Jesus' power and authority being sovereignly exercised, that is the kingdom of God being demonstrated. That is the kingdom coming. Because Jesus came to be our king. Remember, that was his message. The gospel writer Mark records it in the very first chapter. He's, he's the gospel writer who wants to just get right to business. He's not going to tell us about swaddling clothes and wise men and all that stuff. He just wants to get to Jesus. And so he gets straight to Jesus and his ministry, and he, he observes Jesus' ministry and his, his preaching ministry, and this was Jesus' sermon. This was his message, Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. The present age is coming to a close. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of Messiah is spilling into our present time. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and trust in me, Jesus says. I am your king. I have come to make all all things that have gone wrong, all of those things that that were just prayed about, that frustrate us about this world, I have come to make all of those things wrong. Right. Because I am Messiah, Jesus. I am the anointed one. I am the promised king. That's, that's all the word Messiah means. Anointed one, promised king, and, and Christ is its counterpart. Same word, same title for Jesus. He is God's promised one. The one promised in the Old Testament who, who, who would come to, to redeem his people, to be the Savior who would come to to, to begin to usher in the the age of Messiah, to right everything that had gone wrong back in the garden, that that first sin and that curse that we've been living at under, and and the death that we experience because of the curse, and the separation from our Creator that we experience because of our own sin. King Jesus came to right all of that. And he did it as a humble king. He did it as a dying and crucified king. So that when he died on the cross of Calvary, King Jesus won his greatest triumph. He received the wrath of God for our sin so that we don't have to pay for our sin eternally, separated from God in hell. But instead, by trusting in King Jesus, who lived the righteous life that we were not able to, but died an atoning death in our place, by trusting in him, we could have forgiveness of sins. And we could have eternal life. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. But through him, God defeated death by raising him from the dead. And so so this last enemy death, Paul's going to write at the end of 1 Corinthians, death, where is your sting? It's gone because Jesus has defeated you and Satan, Jesus has defeated you. Yes, you're you're still messing around in this world. We're still in this present age. It hasn't quite been wrapped up yet, but King Jesus will come. Your defeat has already happened. He will just come to to clean it up and wrap up the mess. That's who Jesus is. He is our king. He is the one who is ushering in his kingdom through his people. The writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, And now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is seated at the right hand of God. That means he is reigning. That means he is king. That means he has sovereign authority today. And all who look to King Jesus in faith become his glad subjects, 
his forgiven subjects, his new people. Paul writes to the Colossians that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom. God has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. And so here, friends, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul says with with blood-earnest conviction, that is the power of the kingdom. The power of the kingdom is the power to, to transform lives, the power to change people. And so how do we know that Jesus is reigning today? We look at his people. And we see how they resemble their king. That's why Paul could say, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Because he's transforming me more and more into his perfect image, little by little. We know Jesus is reigning because we look at his people and we see they resemble their king. We see their humility like their king. We see their their cross-shaped lives. We see God's people pouring out themselves so that others might find their greatest joy in King Jesus. That's how we know that Jesus is reigning among his people. There is the evidence that he is king. Friends, that is the message of this text. That the reign of King Jesus ought to be seen in those who have been rescued by his cross. For all who have come to King Jesus in faith, trusted in him, repented of their sin, received salvation, his reign should be seen in our lives individually. It should be seen in our lives together, corporately, as the local church. The realities of the kingdom ought to be evident in those who have been redeemed by the king. And so the kingdom of God is is not a matter of talk in words. It doesn't consist of talk in words. But that doesn't mean we can't talk about it. I'm using a lot of words right now to tell you about the kingdom of God. I, I don't think I'm violating this text. And the Apostle Paul was writing a lot of words to tell people that the kingdom wasn't a matter of words and talk. Words are important. But the reality of the kingdom, its, its essence, its substance, the stuff of the kingdom, will be seen in its transforming power in the lives of God's people, in, in everything that they're involved in. This was Paul's apostolic mission. Uh, the, the words that he used to preach the gospel communicated that. Look again at 1 Corinthians, uh, look at chapter 1, beginning at verse 17. Verse 17 and 18. This was Paul's mission. Christ did not send me to baptize, but, as important as that might be, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of, and there's that word, be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross, the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The kingdom isn't coming through through my eloquent words or anyone else's eloquent words, Paul says. That's not the means that God is using to, to, to build his kingdom. But it is the powerful words of the cross. It is the powerful words that that people are being saved. And you notice in that text how it says, are being saved? Often we think of salvation as trusting in Jesus and now I'm saved or now I'm justified. And that is true for the person who trusts in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin, believing in him as Savior, as Messiah, as King. That person is justified. In a moment, God views that person as he views his son Jesus, completely righteous. He credits righteousness to their account. Which is, it's just amazing to think about that if you are in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him, uh, you, are, you are as justified at this moment as you will ever be. You will, you will not be more justified in eternity. 
You are completely justified now in Christ. You are his dearly loved child through Jesus. He sees you as completely righteousness because as we sometimes say, you, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He sees Jesus, he sees you as he sees Jesus because you have been united to Jesus in faith. Paul even talks about that. It's his most common way of, of talking about uh, being a Christian, that you are in Christ. And so we are fully justified in Him. Yet salvation has this aspect that it's not, it's not complete yet. There's, there's the already, completely justified, but there's also the not yet. And that falls more into the, the category of sanctification. The, the, the holiness that is being lived out in our lives more and more progressively as, as through the Holy Spirit, King Jesus has his ways in, in, in all that we are and all the aspects of our lives. And it is in this process of sanctification that that is seen, that that is played out in real time, that we see the kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom coming to bear in our lives as Christians. And so words are necessary but whether or not those words have been effective will be seen in their power to transform and to demonstrate the presence of King Jesus' redeeming work in our lives. And let's be careful that we understand what power is. Because power in our culture is often seen as something that is as manipulative, like the power of human wisdom that Paul was dealing with here with the Corinthians. It's not that kind of power. Uh, nor is it some, some spectacular, miraculous power that, that has to do with, with uh, for instance, the spectacular gifts of the Spirit. This is something that the Corinthians were, were fascinated with, we're going to learn. We're not talking about that. We're talking about efficacy. God's work effectively being worked, this work of the Spirit being effectively worked out in our lives. Lives that are changed and that look more and more like Jesus. It has to do with, with kingdom living, that with kingdom power being on display. And so the reign of King Jesus will be evident in the lives who have been rescued by his cross. But I think we can't help but asking the question, what exactly does that look like? What does that look like in real time? And I want to point towards Scripture and, and four ways that we ought to see kingdom power on display in the lives of Jesus' people, in the lives of those who have come under the reign of King Jesus. And the first way we see that is in the power of, an, of new life. It's the power of regeneration. It's the kingdom power that Jesus talked about that night when Nicodemus came and asked him some, uh, some deep and incredibly important questions. And in John chapter 3, Jesus replied to Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he or she cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is so old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit of God, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and the, wind, the word for wind and spirit are the very same word. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you, you cannot know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Kingdom power looks like the power of new life. It looks like the power of, of regeneration, of, of life being given and generated in something that was once dead, namely our sinful hearts. The power of the kingdom is the power to be made new. It is the power to be transformed. Notice that Jesus called 
uh, salvation entering the kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom is all about newness. That's the nature of the kingdom. That was Jesus' mission. Shortly after creation, sin entered, and everything that was good was ruined. It was tainted. It was fallen. Jesus came as the king so that creation might be renewed and restored and that his people would one day live in the the new creation. Everything new, everything restored, everything that is anti-God, everything that, that doesn't conform to his will, gone. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul writes about this unfolding plan that God has for, for all, of, all of the universe, all of the cosmos. He says, this is, why Jesus, this is why God sent Jesus Christ. This is why God sent King Jesus as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, all things in heaven, all things on earth, which is a long way of saying everything in all of the universe. Everything is going to be united in Jesus Christ. Everything conforming to his lordship. Everything under his good, sovereign authority, including his people, who through regeneration of the Spirit are made new, who trusting in Jesus are a new creation in Christ. So the first way that we observe kingdom power is in the power of new life. Second, what does this look like? What does kingdom power look like? It looks like the power of of Godward desires or God-focused desires. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking on the theme of what does life in the kingdom look like? What does life in the kingdom look like for Jesus' disciples, for his followers? And Jesus sums it up well in this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All this other stuff that you guys worry about, all this other stuff that we all worry about, it's going to be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Get your your desires focused on King Jesus first. What you want, what you are desiring, what you are pursuing in life, what you love, what you get excited about, Focus that on King Jesus. Focus that on his kingdom. Everything else will be taken care of. God will take care of you. All of these other things will be added. So how we use what we have, our time and our talents and our treasure, all of these things come under the lordship of King Jesus. Are we using them for his kingdom? Are our desires such that everything we have and everything that we are conforms to his purposes, the purposes of his kingdom? What a great uh, diagnostic verse this is. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added. The, The diagnostic of what I'm seeking. I love those diagnostic machines or computers that they, you can go to the mechanic or even the auto parts store and they they hook it up and they give you some code. And I know nothing about cars. So whatever they tell me about the code, I believe. They can see you've got a 65-A37 code. That means you need to change your windshield wipers to get a new air freshener in your car. And I'd be like, yeah, okay. Thank you. The computer said so. The diagnostic, though. We need diagnostics in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And this is a great diagnostic. What am I seeking? Am I seeking first the kingdom of heaven? Am I seeking first the righteousness of God? Then all the other stuff that I'm worried about will be taken care of. And the kingdom will be seen in my life as my desires conform more to Christ's kingdom. The third way that we see kingdom power on display, that we see the kingdom lived out in real life, is the power of authentic community power of authentic community. Paul, writing to the church at Rome in chapter 14, verse 17, speaks of the kingdom of God and what it is a matter of and what it's not a matter of. Very similar to this text. 
Paul doesn't write, doesn't use the term kingdom of God a whole lot in his writings. He's, but he's certainly leaning on everything that Jesus said about the kingdom, and it certainly is a theme of his. But this is one of the other places besides our text this morning where he specifically speaks of the kingdom of God. And he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us, church, pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. In Paul, the context of this passage is believers are not caring well for one another. They're taking issue with what one another eat and what one another drink and perhaps even flaunting what they eat and what they drink in front of other believers whose conscience may not uh, be the same as theirs. And so there's this very much, the context of this particular passage about the kingdom of God has very much to do with, with Christian community and how do we live together as God's people, as the body of Christ. And Paul says the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of what you get to eat or what you get to drink or anything like that. But it's a matter of pursuing makes for, for peace relationally, wholeness among the community, and for mutual upbuilding. And so how we live together as God's redeemed people says much about the kingdom coming to bear and coming in our lives. As was prayed earlier, we live in a very fragmented society. It's hard to imagine. We, just, we, 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 we see the news and we, we say, yeah, why can't we, why can't we figure it out? relationally in our world? Why can't we get along with one another? And at the same time, in our world, we often see community defined by the lowest common denominator. If we play the same video game, we're part of the gaming community, or whatever it is. You can be part of the whatever community, you know, based on your favorite color or whatever. That, that can define community in our world. Friends, in the body of Christ, our unity is based on the highest common denominator. It's based on our King. It's based on coming under the authority of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so there is real community that can happen amongst God's people. And what is more, all the things that, that fragment us out there are secondary to what unites us in Jesus Christ. And so, in the church, we can experience real, authentic community with one another, real relationships. And that's a sign of the kingdom. And that's a sign of the world that the kingdom is coming. And friends, that is attractive to our world because it is so split apart to see people living together and loving one another in the midst of their differences, experiencing real community. That's what it looks like for the kingdom to come in real time. And then finally, fourthly, the fourth way that we see the kingdom in real time amongst God's people is the power of holy living. The power of holy living. Later on in this same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as Paul begins to correct some really, really serious sin issues in this church, he mentions the kingdom of God again as he's doing correcting and as he's pointing them toward holiness. In chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, he writes, Church, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, 
And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so he's calling them to, to live out holy lives. Yes, that was your former life. But something has happened to you. Through King Jesus, you've been washed and you've been sanctified and, and you've been justified. And so, so living like the culture around you, continuing to live that way, does not demonstrate that King Jesus now reigns in your life and that His Spirit now has, has filled you and is transforming your desires. And so the evidence of the kingdom coming in our lives is holy living, increasingly looking more and more like Jesus. And the goal of that kingdom living is not for us Christians uh, to feel superior because we have a superior morality to those around, compared to those around us. The goal is for us to be on display to a lost, confused, and dying world, showing that King Jesus washes sin-soiled people. He cleans them. He sets them apart for himself. He provides them with the righteousness that they need through his Spirit. That's how our holy living demonstrates the kingdom in real time. What does this power of the kingdom look like? Paul said the, the, the kingdom is not about talk, it's not about words, it's about power manifested in real time among God's people. It looks like the power of new life in us through regeneration. It looks like the power of, of desires more focused on God and in what is important to Him and what He values. It looks like authentic community being lived out Diverse people united in Jesus Christ. It looks like holy living as we reflect more and more the beauty of God's holiness. Well, I want to close referring to Paul's final appeal. He makes that final parental appeal in the last verse of this chapter. How do you guys want to play this, he says. What do you wish? You want to do this the hard way? You want to do this the easy way. Your, your parents ever say that to you? There are two ways that we can do this. We can do this the hard way, or we can do this the easy way. Do I need to come to you with, with a rod? Do you need a pastoral spanking, as it were, Paul says? Or will you receive my care and my correction in the spirit that I am giving it to you? In love, in gentleness, gently appealing to you, urgently appealing to you, as your spiritual father. I want to make a final pastoral appeal to us in that spirit. The kingdom of God is really massive. It's as huge as all of creation. It's as huge as, as all of the cosmos. And for that reason, it can seem very overwhelming. Even to read that, that, that Jesus, that God sent Jesus so that all things would come under his authority. That, that is hard to wrap our minds around. It's, it's, it's so huge. It can be overwhelming. The all things. And yet, that is the beauty and the practicality of Jesus' coming kingdom. That because it encompasses all things, it includes the very small things of your life. It includes the, the, the seemingly insignificant details. That God's will is to see His kingdom coming in the everyday aspects of your life. From changing a diaper to going to the store. He wants to see the kingdom come to bear in those everyday moments as much as He does in the front page moments of gospel advancement. And so King Jesus is eager to see his kingdom coming in power. When you drive to work tomorrow morning, when you try to figure out the family's schedule for the week later today, 
King Jesus wants to see his kingdom coming when you have a disagreement with your spouse. When you speak to your clients this week, when you clean your home and whittle away at that mountain of laundry. The evidence that God's kingdom is coming is in the transformed lives of his people. May God fill us with his Holy Spirit. May he give us his grace to see his kingdom come in the smallest aspects of our lives. Wherever we go this week, may that communicate to the world that, that Jesus reigns and that he's calling them, calling others to be his loving subjects. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are our king, and we worship you today. We have elected officials, presidents and governors and representatives, and we get to choose them. Sometimes we don't like how they rule over us and we complain about them, but Jesus, we didn't choose you. You chose to be our king, and we have no complaints. You are our good king. You are our loving savior. It is our joy to be your subjects. And Lord, we want to see your kingdom come more and more in our lives, more and more in our, in our life together as the body of Christ. We pray that our lives would cry out to the world that we were poor and powerless, we were lost and lonely, but you made us your children, you made us our, your subjects, King Jesus. We pray that our lives would tell the world that Jesus is, is God, that he is our King. We pray this in his name. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H Bible.org.